Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm here with Jonathan Trevor. He's the Associate Professor of Management Practice, practice at Side Business School, also author of the book Align, which we'll, I'm sure we'll take a dive into uh, today. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Nice to be here. Uh, on, on, on a Zoom call, given our current situation, <laughs> we had planned to yeah. do this in person, but as we record this, obviously we're uh, many of us working from home mm. uh, well, yeah. i think we're demonstrating our versatility so <laughs> yes, hopefully exactly. <laughs> yes uh, and we should also say that of course this book was uh was it was book of the month uh by financial times was it that's correct uh, yeah yeah uh, and uh, late last year so it's uh, it's getting a lot of applauds this book uh, align and of course alignment as a topic and a theme i think is becoming uh, more important in in management discourse right now, um, so it's, it feels like a timely conversation. Um, oh, I very much hope so. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So before we dive into you know your definition of alignment and and the framework that you've built around it, I thought it was useful to touch on a perhaps a philosophical point here, and that's about this question of universalists versus contingency theorists. So could you talk about that a little bit before we we go deeper into what we mean by alignment? Well, um, um, for, for me, there, there are you know, many competing schools of thought in, in academia across all variety of disciplines. Within business and management, I think there's a, a major sort of divergence of views um, of scholarship around two schools of thought, essentially two schools of thought about how businesses, whether it's the business of government, the business of commerce or the business of not-for-profit, how businesses, enterprises can deliver performance. Um, and um, on the one side, we call um, a, a group of scholars called the Universalists. And their work has been incredibly influential over the last two to three decades in terms of coming up with essentially lists of best practices. Um, and, and quite simply, they you know, the, 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 the sort of, in a nutshell, they looked at successful companies and said, what do they all share in common? Well, there, there is a certain few common traits and these become associated with best practice and by implication under the universalistic perspective, um, this is what all companies should do because that's what the best companies do. Um, and it's sort of quite a, 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 a sort of, you know, um, pulls it apart and basically tries to get down to essentially these are a singular set of practices that regardless of context will always deliver superior results. Quite a reductionist perspective. On the other hand, there's another group, uh, and I, I would consider myself one of them, uh, and we go by the very uh, flashy title of contingency theorists. <laughs> um, and essentially contingency theorists, not that they would ever identify themselves as a group, but, but essentially they come from almost the philosophical perspective that the world's a very complex and, uh, place and for which there need to be nuanced solutions. And there aren't best practices. Um, there aren't a set of, a singular set of practices in business management that apply to any company uh, or any organization everywhere um, at, at all times and will always deliver superior results. Rather, we ask the question, you know, what, what is the best market strategy for a company? Um, well, the answer is it depends. It depends upon a variety of different factors. Um, what's the best design of organization? What's the, the right culture or, or, or the best structure? Well, again, it depends. Um, and, and that sort of, that idea that 
you know, what we should do as companies, as leaders in order to deliver performance is contingent upon a whole variety of factors um, is, I think, incredibly powerful. And, and for me, resonates not just intuitively, but, but empirically with what we see companies trying to grapple with, particularly in the current environment, which is more complex, more uncertain. Um, and, and requires the exercising of judgment by leaders to understand their context and then to devise market strategies, to design organizations, to formulate people systems, all of which are fit for their unique circumstances as opposed to some generic standard. Um, but you, you, you also have the seduction of the universalistic school because a lot of really hard pressed, time pressured, uncertain, scared, um, sleep deprived leaders just kind of want to know what to do and I get asked all the time Jonathan tell me what to do and and then I say something unhelpful like well it depends and which is not very seductive which is not very seductive it's really hard um, it may be honest but it's it's not appealing and 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 I and I really understand and I really feel um, for for those in positions of responsibility and the job is getting harder for sure. Um, and, and so, you know, again, you have this academically, you have this, this battle between universalism and contingency, but you actually also see it in practice as well between best practice and best fit. Um, and the reality is that we can take inspiration from successful companies in terms of what they do, but we should never really seek to emulate them because what they've done is worked out what works for them not necessarily what works for others, um, even others in different industries. Um, so that, that for me is, you know, right from the get-go, that sets the scene, academically at least, for alignment in terms of its underpinning philosophy. But, but practically, it also raises the importance that alignment is about the quality of leadership decisions, um, for which there is no generic best practice shopping list that you merely need to import and either execute well or poorly. No, no, no. It, the job is to, to actually exercise judgment, to think what will work in our context and then to execute it well. Um, so alignment in some sense creates a harder job or implies that there is a, a harder job for leaders, for managers. And the book is intended to be a support for that. Um, you know, to give them that guidance, um, to raise awareness of the importance, but to then go beyond saying, well, here's the problem you're having to face with every day, by the way, to actually give them the support necessary, at least in the form of an intellectual toolkit. Yes, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I certainly feel like I subscribe more to the contingency theorist school and a lot of my the reading and complexity sort of supports that idea. However, I'm also finding myself guilty sometimes of falling into the seduction of the universalist, perhaps not so much because I'm sleep deprived and I'm just sort of grasping for some something mm, that gives mm, me an answer, mm. but more because just there are certain aspects of, of some you know, best practices which fit, which are closer to my values. Uh, yeah. And so, so I, I want that to be the answer, even if, as you're, you're right, in, in certain contexts, the, the fit that matches best my set of values may not be the answer for that situation. And that seems to be another uh, seduction of the universalist uh, approach yeah and, and and to be clear i'm not saying always that universalistic prescriptions are are wrong but i do think that if we look back in history we can see that a lot of the prescriptions um that were considered you know the common sense of the day of course you should do this um actually ended up destroying value and not creating it um 
and and, and there's a whole load of examples that we can look to for that. I think they're also culturally loaded as well. Um, you know, a lot of the best practice prescriptions come from the U.S. I mean, the U.S. is a powerhouse of publishing and business and management. Um, so, it, it, you know, again, there's yes, maybe, maybe in the context of the U.S., but does that apply everywhere across the world in all cultures, in all business systems, in all regulatory regimes? Uh, maybe not. Um, and does it apply across all industries and, and equally? Um, so I just think there needs to be, again, fr from a contingency perspective, a degree of nuance. Um, and we should always just be slightly aware that, that there is no substitute for working out what works for us. Um, never. Um, and, and in some sense, it's almost, I would actually, I'm, I'm going to be a bit tough and say, um, any leader that seeks to do that is effectively outsourcing their judgment to some, some other. And I think that that is absolutely wrong. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that makes sense. And I, and I see it, I think, and also Japan, I mean, often via the US, um, but certainly from my, a lot of my background is working with software teams and software engineering. And of course, they've taken a lot of the original lean thinking as translated into agile for, for software engineers. And so, so a lot of the inspiration comes from a lean, but I think the same trap of universalism can apply. Well, I mean, you mentioned the term agile, and I think that's, um, I mean, that's a kind of, at the moment, that's very de rigueur. That, that is the fashion. Um, and what I hear an awful lot of is, well, we need to be more agile. When you actually challenge people, what does agile mean? Um, often it's used interchangeably to mean speed or flexibility or adaptability um, or versatility. Um, in fact, it, it means a lot of different things to different folk, um, but it's a word that we use and it almost becomes... It would be unthinkable for somebody to stand up and say at a conference, um, actually, I aspire to be less agile. Um, actually, possibly for some, that, that maybe is actually the right thing. Um, if we are looking for um, continuity, if we're looking for durability, if we're looking for repeatability, if we're looking for consistency and standardization, actually, agility isn't always a desirable organizational capability. For example, actually, what we should be emphasizing is stability. Stability gives us that ability to scale, for example. Um, uh, so, so this idea that sort of agility is universally a good thing for everybody at all times. Um, I'm, I'm not saying it's not, but I, I think, you know, we shouldn't assume that it is. And, and we should also try to get to the bottom of what does it really mean and what does it mean in our context and, and actually see it as something which is in competition with other priorities, one of which could be stability or efficiency, for example. Um, uh, so, so again, it's sort of this trying to get to this idea that we need to move beyond the fashion of the day and to think really carefully, what is it that we need? And what we may need may not be particularly sexy, but it really, really works. Yeah. And that comes through again in the book, you know, these hard messages, like you, you can't have agility and stability, right? You're going to need to choose. And that, again, not a seductive yeah. message, but perhaps the reality in many cases. I, I mean, I think, again, yeah, really great point. And sort of this idea that businesses can be um, sort of superior at everything. I, I just, that that's not the case. The reality is that, uh, you know, we have trade-offs. We are encountering trade-offs all the time. Classic one, I think, from an organizational design perspective. So what we design our organization to be capable of um, is is between efficiency on the one hand and flexibility on the other. Um, and you can't be equally superior at 
efficiency and flexibility. At the same time, we, we need to choose and prioritize and then align behind that. Um, I think that that's absolutely the case. Um, unfortunately, I think there's also a, a lot of a lot of folk out there saying, well, you can do both and you end up just being bad at both in attempting to be superior. Yeah. 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 To have it all. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, so we started talking about alignment, which is great. So maybe we should now talk about how you define uh, alignment and then perhaps we can get, get onto the, to the framework that you developed. Um, so uh, alignment, I, I think, is, is another, another one of these terms that needs to be um, unpacked a little bit. Um, uh, I think alignment traditionally has meant, um, in a business and management context at least, um, it, interesting, I've been contacted by loads of chiropractors who say, well, I do alignment. <laughs> it's not that. <laughs> That's a really interesting byproduct of the research. And, and the book kind of getting some notoriety is that um, it's not a book about uh, aligning your spine, apparently, um, although that's a big deal. I had no idea about that world. Um, alignment in a business management context means um, uh, thinking about the whole of the enterprise. And I use enterprise instead of organizations. Um, but the whole of a business or the whole of a charity, the whole of a government department, whether it's large, small, domestic, international, whatever sector think about the whole of an enterprise and to understand that it consists of common components every enterprise is a value chain typically that consists of five components its purpose the enterprise purpose what it exists for and why it matters and that's an enduring purpose um, second is the business strategy what it's trying to win at in order to fulfill its purpose so its offerings to market its choice of how it aligns to its customers and how it differentiates from its competitors. It's organizational capability, the things it needs to be good at organizationally to win, to deliver that strategy, whatever it may be in support of the fulfillment of its purpose. So whether it's on the one hand, you know, delivering efficiency at scale, on the other hand, it's kind of, you know, unprecedented innovation. Um, again, often that they are uh, trade-offs or, or difficult to balance. Uh, the fourth would be its organizational architecture, so, you know, its approach to its culture, its structure, its people, its processes, all of the things that make it capable, more or less, of the, the things which are strategically important. And finally, its management systems. Um, so its approach to how it manages people, how it manages workplace, how it manages technology, how it manages finances, and so on, all the things that deliver performance on a day-to-day -day basis, the, the infrastructure, uh, particularly the managerial infrastructure of the enterprise. So all these things need to align. Um, they need to come together. Our strategies need to support our purpose. Our organizational capability needs to support our strategy. Our architecture needs to support our capability. And our management systems need to support our architecture. Um, and so essentially, it's this idea that every enterprise is a value chain. And the value chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And the best aligned enterprises are the best performing, again, regardless of sector. Seeing enterprises in that sense is common sense, and I'm delighted that people feedback that it's common sense, but it's also not how we genuinely think about our enterprises. And we don't, we don't see them as these connected value chains which need to be aligned. Um, and, and essentially, you know, the value chain, I think the practical value is that it helps leaders, regardless of their role, but leaders particularly with thinking about the whole of the enterprise or in an important part of it, 
it helps them to make sense of the choices they have to make and each of those linkages um, and what the factors are that should be considered and, and just how to communicate that sense of what the enterprise is and its direction, what's important, um, where we might be strong, where we might be weak, what we need to improve and what we need to change. And indeed, what that looks like today, that value chain, our choices around our strategy, our choices around our organization and how that might need to be different in the future. Um, so, you know, I consider it the job of an academic to try and make complex things simple. And the value chain was was really an attempt to simplify what is otherwise something that we take for granted, that there is this, this sort of superstructure that sits behind every enterprise and often determines its success or failure and alignment is the moderating variable. Right. And, and that was interesting for me to read that definition um, because a lot of what I'd read, read previously around alignment focused very much on the, the human element and mm. the extent to which people are al- aligned around an objective or a mission. Mm. And in fact, we had a guest recently on the show who's got a platform which allows you to get a sense of how aligned people are to a partic- particular goal or, or any other, um, I suppose, stated directional mm. aspect of a business. And you're, you're taking, it seems to me, a slightly broader view here. Would, would that be right? Yeah, I, I, I do think that's right. And, and you, like I said at the beginning, that alignment means different things to different folk. And I think traditionally, I think you're right that what it has meant is just how we, how we think about people and their engagement in the purpose yes. and the interests. Um, and I, I don't think that's wrong, but I think that is quite a partial perspective on what alignment is. Uh, alignment for me is, is, is a bigger deal than just thinking about people because people under my view of alignment and what I call strategic alignment, which is to say us as leaders taking a strategic approach or strategic, um, uh, um, perspective on alignment as our source of competitiveness as the factor that primarily determines good performance versus bad performance. Um, for, for me, um, alignment is, 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 is a bigger deal. People feature as just one aspect of that value chain alongside technology, alongside knowledge. They are a resource, not the only resource, one of many, and a, a completely critical resource. Um, but we need to think about how people in a strategic way find their location within that value chain and then um, both design our people architecture and how we manage those people, our people systems as part of that wider value chain, um, that higher level value chain that is the enterprise value chain. Um, so the, the kind of, I suppose the, the, the hard message there is the enterprise value chain and strategic climate sees our people as a means to an end, but actually everything is a means to an end the enterprise's ends is ultimately its purpose, the reason why it exists. And we need to make sure that we are integrating our people, ensuring they are engaged and aligned. And I think when we talk about people alignment, what we, we are also meaning is people engagement. Um, but we need to make sure that's part of a bigger equation, a, a bigger value chain. And it isn't the sum total of, of the importance of alignment. There are many other things which need to be aligned and they need to place within the context of that value chain. Yeah. But would it be fair to say that, that a risk of taking this broader, broader approach, which, which may be less partial, is, is that you, you somehow lose sight of this, the, 
the, this question of to the extent to which people are with you in in whatever you've architected uh, i don't think so in some sense i think without taking that broader approach it's hard to understand what it is that you want from people okay yeah um so so again a strategic climate perspective would say in order for us to succeed as a as a business or a charity or a government department whatever it is that we're trying to do what do we need from our people in terms of behavior do are we asking them to be completely cost conscious because you know our margins are really tight or are we asking them to be sort of creative disruptors not the same thing it's a different set of behaviors so what is it we want our people to do how do we want them to behave what skills do we need them to possess where are we getting them from but equally what are we offering to them so what do we want from our people from the best talent um equally what do they want from us and then how do we come together and create that employment environment which is the most conducive that we have a structure that supports their work whether it's on the one hand kind of very close coordination for efficiency on the other hand it's sort of this idea of collaborating across verticals and silos that we can also create a culture that is permissive i was in a a a company recently who absolutely talked a big game about wanting their people to be kind of these disruptive innovators on the other hand had an organizational structure which completely prohibited any sort of uh, autonomy or empowerment and and so the two cancelled each other out so so in some sense what you're talking about uh, for me ensuring that our people are engaged in what we're trying to achieve is simply good management um there's this wider question of what is it we're actually asking them to do and what what is it they should expect of us and how do we ensure that that's matched um and furthermore how do we integrate our people within our wider organizational architecture to ensure that we develop the capabilities which are really important to us strategically because this is how we're trying to serve our customers and be different from our competitors and ultimately all in the service of this reason why we exist at all as an enterprise and why anyone should care um for me unless you have that you know you, you don't have the substance behind which you're trying to engage your people anyway um so it's not either or uh, actually that they're, they're all part of the same thing and what i see a lot of is a lot of effort and attention around trying to engage people but often a lack of clarity around the what the how and the why and and that's that breeds disengagement ironically <laughs> <laughs> right so if you don't have these things lined up first sure then even the best intended engagement exercises are, are, are risk failure because people yeah don't have something to 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 engage exactly with. doomed yeah. to failure um and i think you know we i mean i sort of come from an hr background so in many respects a lot of the alignment thinking comes out of this idea of of hr human capital industrial relations where where we're sort of finding the fit whether it's fit between different stakeholders employer employees or finding fit between different groups internally you know is is also important uh, and i i think absolutely um you know the the best managed team is doomed to fail you know no matter how talented or heroic or 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 or, or hard working you know a, a manager may be if there isn't that sense of clarity and that sense of purpose and that understanding that becomes internalized this is what we're trying to achieve collectively this is what i need to do and this is why i matter so that engagement and alignment it can be an operational concern which i think is the people like piece but i'm saying it should also be a strategic concern that sits at this high level creating this concept of the enterprise 
what it's about, how it's going about it and why it matters. And then building that, not just in employees, but actually also in customers, in investors, in communities, but also especially partners. A great many people who work now on behalf of enterprises aren't employees, they're contractors. Uh, so this human capital issue is, 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 is a really a much broader thing. When we talk about people, we're not just talking about those who are directly employed. We're talking about everybody that has a stake and a responsibility for ensuring the uh, effectiveness and the, the performance of the enterprise in fulfilling its purpose. Yes, and actually, as you put it that way, <clears throat> the people engagement side it, 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 will have its limits, right? There's only so much you can in- do, engagement you can do with your customers or, or your or your your those in your supply chain and so on right so so there's yes it's, it's interesting to to reflect on that that yes we can we can do quite um sophisticated engagement exercises with our staff but you know that that that's limited I, I think i think what i'm saying is we need to think more holistically hmm. about who it is that we're trying to engage what what does people really mean and i think Today and increasingly going forward, it means not just employees. Um, it means that you know, it means all those working in the ecosystems that increasingly businesses rely upon. Um, it, it means also our relationship with customers as well. Um, I mean, the research would evidence that um, we as customers are far more likely to demonstrate loyalty towards a brand that we consider purposeful than one that isn't um those that aren't is purely a transactional relationship and often a race to the bottom in terms of cost so uh, there is a connection i think you're the point you're making is a, a really good one around how do we make sense of um who we are what we're trying to achieve how we're going about it and how we organize to go about it and that thing we're trying to make sense of is the enterprise value chain and i just think the reality is that a lot of companies don't do that very well simply because they don't think about their enterprise as a value chain um, and they don't talk about it as a value chain and they don't understand it or make decisions as a value chain. Um, and, and that really needs to be at the heart of every conversation because it really covers everything that's important um, or should be important um, in terms of decision-making and engagement. Right. And, and use that as the basis for your alignment conversation, not, not how people feel about you know some particular aspect of that i think so uh and and certainly not you know not don't use sort of as the basis for a conversation well, what do google do <laughs> or what does <laughs> right, that's do? the other point you know and that and that is again is you know a lot of companies aspire to google levels of engagement there's this perception that google employees are really engaged and that's because of beanbags and 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 kind of colorful office spaces no no i think I mean, Google is, is an excellent company because it works really hard at creating the right environment for its variety of people that really matter to it. Um, uh, it wouldn't work necessarily elsewhere. So we should aspire to the same outcome, but don't, don't, sort of, don't think that we should adopt the same solution to achieve that outcome. It has to be on a case-by-case basis. Yeah. Okay, so should we? So, in terms of helping people understand their value chain and the choices and the trade-offs that they have in this quest for an aligned organisation, should we should we take a look at your um, strategic alignment framework and let's uh, let's test the technology here and let's bring it up on on screen for those who are watching. 
so this is the strategic alignment uh, framework. So could you talk us through it? Yeah. Um, so essentially this is uh, a, a framework that, that sort of sits at the heart of the book. Um, and the book, I suppose, had, had really three purposes. Uh, the first was to raise awareness of the, um, the importance of alignment, number one. The second was to um, uh, present the, the kind of the questions or how to think about alignment in the form of the value chain that we've been describing and the questions that leaders need to, to ask um, at each linkage in order to be aligned, in order to think about the future in an aligned way. Um, but then the third was to not just sort of present the problem, um, but to also offer a framework uh, to help them for themselves come up with the solutions. So uh, I really take my job as, you know, to be not to, to tell or teach as an academic, as a professor, you know, not to tell or teach people what to do or what to think, but rather how to think. And so, so in some respect, you know, this is a framework for how to think about options to respond to all of the questions that we were discussing before. Questions like, you know, w what is, what are we trying to win at as an enterprise in respect of serving our customers and differentiating from our competitors? You know, what do we, what do we need to be good at in order to implement those strategies organizationally? Um, actually, what makes us good in the form of our organizational choices about our people or our culture, our structure? And, and those are all really important and perennial questions, but the, but how do we answer them? Um, and that's exactly what you see in front of you is intended to do is the strategic alignment framework. Um, and this is essentially what I use to help companies both in a research capacity, but also in a, an applied consultancy capacity to help them to think differently about their options and to choose that which is best fit for them. Um, and for the sake of simplicity, it sort of presents here four distinct models, but the reality is there are many, many more, but that makes for a complicated PowerPoint slide. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's even harder to fit in a book. So, but, but the essential principle behind this is that there are two axes, um, x-axis x and y-axis as a matrix, and it is a matrix. It's not a maturity matrix. Most two-by-two two matrices, which business school professors seem to love, I'm no exception, um, are, are, we would call them maturity matrices. And essentially the idea is that... Um, being in the top right is always yeah, how, how do we get to the best. top right? Yeah, yeah, how do we get to the top right? This is different. Here we actually start in the center. Um, and the question is we need to work out in, in the different directions, work outward towards the edge of the framework, not, not towards the top right. Um, and essentially what it says is that there are two axes, two dimensions, if you will, of organizational capability, which in effect define our approach to how it is that we're trying to win in markets and how it is that we're organizing to win in a complementary way. Um, and the first dimension um, counterposes our requirement for organizational stability with our requirement for organizational agility. So stability gives us um, the organizational capability to standardize our products and services, to scale, to ensure consistency, to ensure reproducibility so we can effectively sell the same thing at scale um, and we can do so in relatively predictable 
ways um, we can ensure that we are um, optimizing our systems, such as supply chain, um, distribution networks, production, in such a way as to contain costs and try to be as efficient as possible. So on the one hand, we have stability, think consistency, think reproducibility, think standardization, think scale. On the other hand, we have the requirement for agility. Uh, agility here isn't speed, but rather how well we can and how well we need to be able to adapt or, or change, um, reconfigure our products and services to respond to the changing preferences of markets, of customer segments, or even you know, to customize what it is that we offer, even down to the level of personalizing it. Um, so offering you know, not the same thing twice, but something which is, is utterly bespoke or off the shelf. So we have these two competing values, if you will, these two competing capabilities, stability on the one hand, agility on the other. Um, and, and that sort of really informs this x-axis. Um, and we need to think about what's really important to us in terms of how it is that we're trying to respond to customers and how it is that we're trying to differentiate from competitors. So therefore, what we should emphasize value. And that's a choice. That's a choice the leaders, uh, enterprise leaders within um, within any type of enterprise, governmental or commercial or, or not-for-profit. The second axis, the y-axis, um, counterposes autonomy with connectivity. Autonomy is um, around uh, the ability or the capability of uh, an enterprise to be purely self-reliant, to be as simple as possible, to prioritize only its own interests um, and to have that degree of um, uh, uh, speed and focus in particular strategic focus around what's what's only important to it um, and to be very self-contained in the process versus connectivity which is the requirement for uh, really horizontally how do we bring together different teams different technologies different domains of knowledge or different lines of business different products different services both internal and also external in order to create value more than the sum of the parts um, as a whole to create some offering to customer, which is a bundle, for example, or takes advantage of synergies. Um, uh, again, like I said, you know, so that the whole of the offering or that the whole of the enterprise is more valuable than any, uh, any combination or, 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 or any of its just sort of aggregation of its individual parts, individual lines of business. And so what would be an example of a sort of the, a pure form of a, of a, of a, enterprise that's high on connectivity and, and equally on autonomy yeah um well so uh, i mean i think probably we we can see some examples i mean if i maybe just go through them actually or make sort of more sense of it um starting with bottom left you know stable and autonomous we call these the efficiency maximizers and these are for example the, the mcdonald's of of the world simple stable um not not to say easy at all it's a tough market but these are our product-led companies for sure um and they um uh they are companies which are seeking to exploit economies of scale selling as much products as possible at the lowest cost possible cost of production um and that's really that surplus is the measure of their their efficiency and their success um and and you know they adopt largely hierarchical forms of organizing um so having quite high levels of centralization having you know very clear cut um performance accountability having relatively routinized work 
we know what good looks like. It's just ensuring that we execute it well. So what really matters for them is efficient execution. So bottom left, um, you know, there we can think of, of any sort of mass consumed, mass producing, product led, efficiency uh, led um, type of enterprise, uh, whether particularly they're seeking to exploit economies of scale. I think once you start to get into agility and autonomy, you can start to think of what we would call enterprising responders. Often these are law firms uh, or professional services firms or financial services firms, um, or for that matter, universities, often knowledge work. Um, and we typically see these as being um, enterprises which are really trying to differentiate on the basis of their customer agility. So they are offering, um, whereas on the bottom left, we're trying to do the same thing all the time, just better and better and better and incrementally innovate. On the bottom right, actually, we're potentially doing radically different things all the time. Efficiency takes a backseat to having that customizability and that uh, exploratory behavior around individual customers' needs, but it's often quite localized. Um, so, for example, um, I think a really good example and one that we use in the book, um, that I use in the book, is Coots. Um, Coots being you know, part of the, the wider group that is, was the Royal Bank of Scotland group now on NatWest. Um, um, but essentially, Coots is a high net worth private client bank. Um, and the reason why you bank with Coots is because they offer a level of personalization of financial service that you're not going to get elsewhere. How is that made possible? Well, it's not through centralization. It's by having really great talent um, that's highly innovative and responsive and agile in terms of their ability to reconfigure uh, the offering uh, to customers, to clients um, operating locally, wh wherever that point of interaction is. Um, oh, actually, with... that, that's, that example made me smile. I thought of the, the pinstripe banker all buttoned up, you know, actually as a paragon of agility when you tend to think of that as software engineers and, you know, hoodies and um, science fiction T-shirts or something. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I, I think the traditional model of banking has been challenged to a large degree. And um, But again, even within banking, what does great banking look like? Well, it depends. You know, it depends. Are you talking about retail banking? Or are you talking about corporate banking? Or are you talking about high net worth banking? In this particular instance, what makes private clients high net worth um, banking successful is, is kind of the key competitive differentiator is, I think, the degree to which they can respond to the the idiosyncratic needs of their, their clientele. Um, and, 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 and for that, you need agility, but you also need that autonomy to, to be able to offer something which is, um, you know, to have that, that sort of simplicity, but also that freedom at the point of interaction to be able to do something different. Um, yeah. I think that, you start then, oh, sorry, please. Yeah, I was going to say that makes sense because I, you know, I spent a long time working in a big four consultancy. And one of the things that struck me as I was looking at this was you're right that professional services firms, the partner has a great deal of autonomy, autonomy uh, over, over how they run their particular unit, um, but also their relationship with the client. And there's a, there's a great deal of latitude that they have around the, the P&L for that account and so on. So that made a lot of sense. And they can, yeah, they can highly customize the service. They can, and they can respond very quickly to client needs. But, but I mean, I think an important thing to, to remember is um, in both of these models, and, and we can talk about the other two as well, um, that there are advantages and disadvantages. So that same sort of autonomy empowerment that you described in, say, a professional service context, um, on the one hand, that gives you that agility, um, it gives you that autonomy. But on the other hand, it also makes it hard then to connect across to other areas of work or to other practices or client teams. And you know, it also 
creates an environment where often it's sort of tribal. Um, and you see that a lot in bottom right, enterprising responding, or what we call the enterprising responder type of enterprise. Often they are quite tribal. Um, often they are, um, uh, it's difficult from a, a, an overall enterprise perspective to, to find value in the connections between different groups simply because those connections don't exist. They're yeah. sacrificed in the sake of autonomy. I'm just just with your with your mic, Jonathan. I think it may be rubbing oh. a little bit on your shirt. My apologies. Yeah, yeah. Great. So that's uh, that's the bottom bottom right. Where should we go next? Well, so top left, I think, is the obvious next one. Um, we call these portfolio integrators. Um, they're still stable, but they um, they emphasise connectivity connectivity between different lines of business or between different teams or different groups, even different enterprises. So thinking about this idea of the external ecosystem, um, what really makes them different from, say, a bottom left type of enterprise from an efficiency maximizer is that here, what portfolio integrators are trying to win at is to capture the value of that horizontal connectivity, to capture the value of the synergies that potentially can be exploited by bringing together different groups, different teams, different um, technologies, different lines of business, products, services, whatever. Um, and I think a really good example of this is BYD, uh, the Chinese conglomerate. Previously, and again, we, I talk about this in the book, previously had three um, primary operating companies as a holding company, uh, automotive, uh, mobile phone battery, and also solar panels. Um, and actually having a tough time, like, like many conglomerates, in its different verticals that were separated historically, completely separate businesses effectively. But by bringing them together, it was able to create a new pathway for growth around electric and hybrid um, vehicle technology. Um, and has actually gone to the fore um, as one of the world's, um, uh, particularly in the trucking industry, which is, is, is probably one of the, the highest growth areas for the potential of EV technology, um, uh, has gone to the fore in terms of uh, both innovating but also creating um, the capacity to, um, to, to kind of revolutionize the trucking industry, um, uh, not by acquiring new firms, not by investing in new technologies, but rather by investing in, in connecting its existing teams and existing technologies in novel, in novel ways. And so, so really, you know, portfolio integrators are able to exploit the potential for innovation that's latent, that sits within their their enterprise, but hasn't been tapped into before because we just haven't brought groups and teams together in, in the ways that they should be, or they're able to um, tap into the synergies um, that the customers are increasingly demanding. Um, whereas, I mean, I just give you an example. I used to bank with a certain high street bank and I had multiple different products with them. I won't say who they are, um, but you know, I had a mortgage, I had savings, I had a current account, but I also had a business account. Um, effectively, I had five different um, financial products from them, five different financial services. In each case, it was a different website to manage online with different logins and passwords, different call centers to deal with each, and they couldn't speak to each other. So this bank actually understood the entirety of my financial affairs, but it didn't because it hadn't connected the dots. Uh, and actually, as a customer, I don't want five separate relationships for the same bank. For example, I want one relationship. And I want to be treated as the one customer. Um, and we see this across a whole load of industries, not just banking. Um, 
whether it's B2B or B2C, um, this desire for our vendors to be one-stop shops, but that can only happen when they have that horizontal connectivity. Right. So the connect, so the, and I get the connecting up bit, um, but, but for them to be in, in, uh, in the top left, they're also increasing their stability. So, so what changes are they making in that regard? Well, I think stability still matters because often top left companies are still seeking to create um, or maximize economies of scale. They're still seeking to typically offer um, uh, relatively high volume products and services for which they require consistency and repeatability. But the difference is that they are finding new ways by connecting up um, of offering those those standardized products and services. So, so I think if you're top left, it's still scale, but it's scale differentiated by the ability to bring together more variety, more um, more resources than you could if you weren't connected, um, and, and to be able to offer that to customers as as a value add. Right. Well, and that's interesting because that that's that's potentially creates quite a challenge because you've you've got to you've got to maintain these hierarchies and this 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 control over process, but at the same time, encourage people to reach out to their brothers in another division or brothers or sisters in another sure. division to, yeah. to create some kind of innovation. So that, that must be quite an interesting tension. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And often what you see is portfolio integrators, are, you know, the kind of classic matrix style um, organizational architecture design. Um, but I think you're, you're right. I mean, the advantages that you can bring together you know, you can create really exciting and interesting work and really exciting and interesting propositions to customer um, by bringing together teams. Um, but what it requires is that teams think firm first and they, that they be relatively selfless and not think in terms of their own particular area. It requires that our managers put aside their own P&L or performance accountability and kind of think how can we as, as a collective, um, you know, create that value greater than the sum of the parts. And I am just a part. Um, it requires requires a common language, a common culture, all of the things necessary to reduce the transaction costs of, of collaborating, uh, which can be very high, particularly when we're talking about a multinational environment, for example, or a multi-product domain environment. Um, I think it is really challenging. And I think you know, we, we talk a lot about it in business. And I think um, a lot of my work is, is trying to help encourage this enterprise-wide mindset. Um, but it's certainly easier said than done. But for those for whom it's a requirement because their customers are demanding it, they're demanding that one-stop shop or they, they need to find those innovations in the form of that synergistic in a, a effect. Um, if we don't develop the capability to do that, then, then you know, we're in for a tough time because the, the real disadvantage of being the bottom left, um, which is probably the least um, fashionable of all models, but, but still absolutely viable and my, actually my personal favorite, um, if oh, interesting, because for me, and this is where I talked earlier about me having this sort of visceral reaction. It's like, oh, God, don't put me in that box. Um, well, no, quite, exactly. Um, people never want to be in that box. And certainly my students never want to work in that box. But actually, the majority of enterprises are still in that box. And many will, will and should remain so. But the challenge of being in the bottom left is commoditization. Being in this race to the bottom, because what we offer to market is simple, standardized and standalone. Whereas as we move out in these different directions, including heading north, becoming more connected, it's around finding that, that differentiation, that competitiveness as a result of our connectivity. Um, uh, and, and that, but yeah, as you say, I mean, it, it's hard, but there are real rewards for those 
enterprises that can can manage it. And it it seems as if it almost requires a dual mindset because on the one hand, I've got I've got to continue to steward my uh, my phalanx of the organisation here. I've got to, I've got to, I've got to keep that stable and I've got to maintain. Uh, the the processes and the standardization mm-hmm. there and i've got to on the other hand reach out and, and seek to make yeah so i've yeah. got to locally optimize and create synergies at the same time i i think that's exactly right and you know just a anecdotal thing but i mean where where i've worked with portfolio integrators uh and and i've spoken to, to staff you know one of the biggest complaints i often hear is who's my boss <laughs> I've got two bosses. On the one hand, I've got a vertical boss and then I've got a horizontal boss. Who's more important? And I think we really struggle, again, with that idea of how do we balance these multiple competing priorities? How do we balance the trade-offs that are inherent to every type of enterprise today? Because that's what the market is. It's that complex, that demanding. Um, and, and, and so these are, all, these are all challenging, but they're challenging in different ways. Um, and this ties into your point, which, which we may develop a bit further later, but th- this idea of the, the CEO or the enterprise leader as, as the organizational architect here, hmm. that this, this managing this tension and managing these trade-offs becomes a core con- competency of the leader. Well, in many respects, but the, the, I, I would push back slightly because for me, enterprise leaders aren't necessarily CEOs uh, or, or even the most senior managers in, 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 in any enterprise. Enterprise leaders can be, and often they are, uh, senior executives. But uh, equally, I've encountered enterprise leaders who are operating in a transformational capacity and, and hierarchically are quite junior, but they are taking responsibility for thinking about the whole of the enterprise, each of its different parts, and thinking about it in a strategic way, not just how it's trying to win in the marketplace, but how it's then organizing to win. Um, so, you know, who are the enterprise leaders? Well, you know, it's tempting to say what's well, the CEO, but actually the, probably the correct answer is it depends. <laughs> but that capability needs to exist it, fact, absolutely it's, vital. Mm. it's really vital but interestingly i don't see a lot of learning and development that's intended to develop that um and i think we need to make the very clear distinction between people leadership personal leadership and this idea of enterprise leadership which isn't really about people um for me it's not about inspiring people to want to do something different from what they might otherwise choose to do on a day-to-day basis or, or, or you know, creating high levels of commitment and motivation locally. Enterprise leadership is, um, uh, if you will, quite cold, hard, dispassionate systems thinking. It's about thinking of, of the enterprise uh, as a system of complex moving parts which need to be aligned. And then it becomes the job of management to create the engagement in that. But, but actually, I, I think there's a, a very strong analytical role to enterprise leadership um, uh, as opposed to the sort of the more humanistic role of, of engaging people in it. That, that really matters, matters equally, but it comes later. But first, it's, it is that, that, you know, that really that design thinking, that systems thinking type approach to conceptually how should we think about our enterprise, its direction, and all of the things that will make it succeed? Execution is a second-order issue to that. Yes, and, and as, as you say that, this part of it is, oh, you know, why are we having this conversation on, on the Being Human podcast? And I'm all about, you know, humanism in the workplace. But of course, part of our human capacity is this ability to plan and think in abstract terms 
Um, so absolutely, this is part of of the sort of the, the human skill set, and you're you're emphasising one aspect of it here in relation to enterprises. Well, I mean, I, personally, I think it's entirely appropriate. And again, perhaps it comes down to what, what do we define as human? Um, I think what I'm saying is, and, and it's interesting, I think if you looked at the 50s and 60s and 70s, or particularly 50s and 60s, in terms of what was taught in business schools, um, despite the emergence of human relations theory, it was very sort of rational engineering type approaches to business. We We thought of businesses like engineering projects and then suddenly thought well we, we ought to think them you know in more human terms and we ought to think about what drives people their passions their emotions so suddenly emotional intelligence crept into our business language and i would argue that that in some respects reason and this sort of systems approach or, or the engineering approach to how we think about businesses or, or government departments in some sense, took a backseat to that. I think what I'm saying is we need to do both. We need to do both. Um, so for me, you know, strategic climate is an appeal to reason. Um, it's basically saying that we should seek to create enterprises that really make a difference in the world, whether that's economically or socially, perhaps both increasingly, um, because enterprises really matter to our well-being personally but also societally and goodness you know right now is a really a really obvious example of that in terms of hospitals in terms of healthcare, in terms of education in terms of of, of enterprise um all of that so we should really care about how well they work and what makes them work is us making good choices and exercising good judgment and then ex- executing our choices well implementing well um and I think the environment is so challenging that we need all of that today. Um, so so that, I think that really is what enterprise leadership means. It means just, just making great choices, having the right conversations, but then also implementing well. Uh, and it's not one or the other. Actually, we need to be good at both. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's talk about the top right. Yeah. So this is the one out. where... Everyone wants to work and everyone identifies with it, but it's also the least well-practiced in industry. Um, so again, we come to this fad and fashion. So we, we call this, I call this the network exploiter. And the idea here is that we have an emerging form of enterprise, which seeks to exploit economies of association, not economies of scale, but economies of association. So oh, I like that term. Yeah. Economies mm, of association. Absolutely. So this is where we essentially see that we are delivering both highly connected, but also agile products to markets. We are introducing disruptive innovation, perhaps business model innovation in the form of, of, of new and unprecedented ways of, of serving demand. Um, uh, but we're doing so by relying upon external networks of partners, um, by connecting different groups together to, to find that variety um, to harness that that sort of collective power, but then also having the ability to, to harness that and customize it and align it behind a, a singular customer outcome as a network. Um, and I think you know, there are many examples um, of basic networks, as I would describe it, that we can think of. Um, Uber is one. I mean, I think it's you know an incredibly convenient service. 
Um, what makes it convenient is that it, 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 you know, I think very capably matches supply with demand, um, supply of driving capacity with demand of, of passengers. Um, and it does so in a very intuitive and, and easy way. You see that same logic at work across a variety of different type of network or platform businesses, Alibaba, um, there's a whole load. But increasingly, we also see this logic at work in increasingly uh, established businesses. Um, and uh, uh, the example I use in the book is that of Rolls-Royce and power by the hour. Um, and the way to think about power by the hour is, um, and, and, and power being, we're talking here about not the cars, but rather the, the engines that hang off aircraft and power them forward. Um, you know, Rolls-Royce is absolutely a market leader. It's sort of very strong in terms of technical innovation. But it's also very strong in terms of business model innovation historically um, and uh, replaced its traditional model of cost plus, i.e. the cost of an engine plus parts and maintenance uh, to customers such as British Airways or whomever um, with this idea of power by the hour. Um, and the way a Rolls-Royce executive describes to me, and I hope this, this makes sense, is um, in the past, if somebody wanted to drill a hole in a piece of wood, they would go out and buy a drill. Um, and and drill the hole, um, successfully get the hole, but they're left with the drill, the hardware. Actually, all they were ever really interested in was the hole. And there's multiple different ways you could make a hole in a piece of wood. It doesn't just have to be a drill or, or a piece of equipment then suddenly sits around on a shelf, if you're anything like me, for a couple of years until it eventually you know, is replaced or worn out or whatever. Um, pretty much unused, um, depreciating all the time. There's a similar deal with airlines what they didn't really want engines what they really wanted was the power in order to push their aircraft forward over their their fleets and so that's what rolls royce did they flipped the model in terms of um ceasing to under power by the hour arrangements ceasing to sell engines sell hardware to sell product and the associated support after sales but rather to uh agree a um for a fee um a number of units of thrust required by any airline customer uh, to power their fleets forward and Rolls-Royce does everything else. So it becomes a solution as opposed to a product. Uh, so the implication is that the engines that hang off aircraft are owned and operated by Rolls-Royce, not by the airline itself. It's Rolls-Royce technicians working on the engines. It's Rolls-Royce service centers, which are servicing them. You know, the benefit for the airline is they've divested themselves of responsibility for this most complex piece of the aircraft. Um, the benefit to Rolls-Royce is they're thoroughly embedded as a partner with their customer. Um, again, you know, all effectively they're selling is hot air um, under this flat fee arrangement or flat fee, but under this arrangement over a fixed period of time. So again, it's selling an outcome as opposed to a product. And, and as you start to see that, at a, you know, that type of logic uh, apply across a whole load of industries. But why does that make it a network exploiter? Couldn't you argue that's just a different business model for efficient execution? Um, I, I do think it makes them a network exploiter because effectively to, to confidently offer that, you have to be highly connected internally. So to be able to deliver that, um, that service uninterrupted, reliably, um, efficiently, but also in a way that's innovative, um, which is, say, aligned to the customer's needs. You need to be highly connected internally because Rolls-Royce is taking on all the risk. But you also need to uh, uh, then customize what it is you're offering to the particular airline over time and its idiosyncratic needs. 
So I think that, you know, there's a degree of strengthening the connectivity between what would otherwise be historically separate verticals internally, um, but then to also be able to take all of that capability and align it behind different needs because the needs of American Airlines is different from the needs of British Airways, for example. Um, right. Again, because they're competing themselves. Um, uh, so, so I think that, that, that is the difference. And so it's very much moving from this idea of the product-centric mindset to this idea of the customer outcome-centric mindset um, for which a different set of capabilities are required if you're going to do it well. Right, okay. Uh, and and a lot of the, the connectivity you're describing there is within Rolls-Royce, which, of course, itself is a huge network, right? Exactly, but also across Rolls-Royce's network as well. Mm. Um, so bringing together all of component part suppliers, again, reliably, um, efficiently, but also responsi- or responsibly um, uh, as part of this more complex supply chain. Um, yeah, I, I, absolutely. But they may be less focused on a... F- efficiency and and much more focused on the outcome for the customer as you yeah well i think they have i mean they're responsible for the outcome i mean yeah. so so there's difference between efficiency and being well managed um, efficiency matters to every company um actually customer responsiveness matters to every company um for that matter so does synergies so does you know leveraging networks all of these things matter but the question is what defines our proposition what makes us distinctive? What are we distinctively good at? Um, what, what is core to who we are and how we go about our business and what makes us good? Um, that's what this is really trying to achieve. So it's, it's not trying to say if you're, if you're bottom left, you, you don't care about customers at all. You care deeply, um, but what you're offering is something standardized um, and you're trying to exploit economies of scale. It doesn't say if you're bottom right that, you know, you can uh, be completely profligate with regards to spend and cost. Not at all. Anyone that's worked in a professional services firm knows that budgets are, are really important. But it does mean that that isn't being on budget isn't what defines you in the eyes of customers. Um, that's just simply good business. Um, so in some sense, this is about trying to say, what do we need to be distinctively good at to win? Um, we've got a series of choices. The question that I always ask, whether it's my students or executives or whomever, of these four models, which is best? Um, um, I would say those which are very prone to fads and fashions will say, wow, well, the top right sounds really exciting. Well, the, the honest answer has got to be, as you might have guessed, um, it depends. Uh, each has advantages and disadvantages. It's about choosing that which best fits for us um, and seeing it as part of that value chain. Um, and, and the risk is if we don't choose, if we try to do all of these things or try to be equally good, whether it's sufficient execution on the one hand, customer agility on the other, or horizontal connectivity or network leverage, all of these kind of signature capabilities. If we try to, to do all of it at the same time equally well, we end up in the middle. Um, we're a jack of all trades and a master of none. So we, we, we have to place the bet. And that's the enterprise leadership challenge, I think. Right. Okay. And, and intuitively, this, this makes a lot of sense. And I could also see that you, you, there are trade-offs here. You can't you can't be good or you can't set your organization up to be effective in all of these zones at once, right? You, you, you're either going to, you, you've got to make trade-offs here. And this, I can see how it helps a enterprise leader in the way you've just defined it, make those, those choices. I suppose the, the question in my mind is for those coming at it from a purist complexity perspective, 
they may still find this a little reductive. Uh, they may still say, well, actually, you're still sort of alluding to systems thinking and an engineering mindset, where in reality, any group of connected human beings uh, are themselves highly complex. And trying to ascribe a sort of model of interaction in this way is, is invalid from a complexity perspective. What, what, what do you say to that? I, I, I don't dispute it. And, you know, I, I think I started this by saying... Um, essentially four models are presented here, but of course there are many, many more. And um, I mean, in fact, if you just took the five by five um, scale, you, you end up 65,000 plus. Um, <laughs> so, but, but again, the purpose of this is not to tell people what to do or what to think. It's to give them a means of thinking critically about some of the choices that we have to make. Um, and honestly speaking, I'm probably shooting myself in the foot. I don't care whether people use this model or, or another model, but we need to get into this mindset of thinking hard and thinking critically about the trade-offs that we're facing and what our options are. Um, and, and then being sufficiently confident in our choices that we, we prepare to take bets on them and stick to that and align our people behind it. And I think that's really the focus for me. Um, and so this is in some sense intended to help people to make sense of the complexity that is facing them, um, not, not to give them a, a complete system of thought that means that they don't have to think themselves. Um, rather, it sort of begs the question, raises the issue, provokes and stimulates. Um, I have found it's very helpful as a sense-making device, um, but, but again, it, it, you know, there, there are many more than four options and that, I think the complexity does start to arise, particularly when you think about any large complex enterprise that's got multiple lines of business. It's not to say that all of them should fit into any one quadrant. It may be that if all they do is one thing, then yes, there is just one model which is appropriate for them. But I've been in enterprises where you know business line A is bottom right, business line B is top left. Um, business line C is bottom left and the whole thing together sort of looks top right corporately. So even this model can apply at different levels. And again, that's part of the complexity of it. So I, I, think, I think everybody needs to sort of treat it as, as, as not the answer, but rather the means to, by which you can start to have the conversation and think differently. But ultimately the onus is upon individual leaders to come up with their own answers. I mean, after all, that is the job. And I think, again, uh, it's not a job that I think we're doing particularly well uh, in all cases. Right. We could do better. Well, that might be, I'm just going to stop the share now, because that might be a good segue into the other, the other thing you talk about in the book. And that is, well, let's define this enterprise leader as, as organizational architect. You know, what are the components of that role? What? Well, um, for me, uh, again, it, it's not something which is a wholesale change to existing practice. But it's to say that often I think what, what we're lacking in, in many enterprises is um, those who are, are um, taking a more objective perspective to think about the alignment of their enterprise in strategic terms to try and diagnose the strength of alignment, to then think about future design of the enterprise in all of its different linkages, 
its strategy, its organizational design, its management systems, just for example. And then to be responsible for planning as to how to go about realigning. So at some level, you know, it's almost a little bit like wanting to imagine the metaphor of an aircraft, you know, that's flying along at 50,000 feet. Um, and, and then we have sort of all levels that you need to cover before you descend to ground level. Um, operational leadership is, is really sort of focused around the 10,000 foot level. Then we have divisional leadership, often strategic leadership, people leadership. Again, that's, that's all sort of varying degrees upwards. But we get to a point where we need to think about the whole of the enterprise um, and we need to think about it holistically. We need to think about the future. Often when that's long term, that means five to 10 years out. We need to conduct scenarios. Uh, we need to, to, to kind of make assumptions about the future and build that in. We do do that, but often we do that around thinking about our market strategy. Rarely do we take that far-sighted perspective about our organization and what that needs to look like from a strategic climate perspective strategy and organization go hand in hand. Um, so that's really what the enterprise leadership role that I think is intending to convey that, that we need to have that leadership capability in our enterprise. It doesn't replace the existing capabilities that we need, often much of which is execution focused. Rather, this is more about thinking about the whole of our value chain, thinking about the future, thinking about where we're strong, where we're weak, and thinking about opportunities for improvement. Right. And, and what are your some examples you might choose of of particular individuals who embody this this skill set or this approach i think that's really hard i mean it's hard to talk about individuals um and, and often i don't think enterprise leaders or leadership is about having an individual who who does this it's rather about having a group of people um who potentially come across you know come together from across an enterprise to think strategically about its alignment um, and in particular, it's alignment to the future. So um, I've seen um, often, you know, uh, this occur as a result of, uh, you know, temporary projects. Um, I've, I've rarely seen it as a sort of designated office. Um, you know, the, part of the challenge, I think, about the value chain is that we have different folk making decisions at different stages or different linkages. And they don't always talk together. So, for example... Um, strategy is often the product of board level thinking or the strategy department or, or McKinsey <laughs> nearly always. <laughs> um, uh, and, 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 you know, it occurs at that level and it becomes formulated. Who's responsible for thinking about organizational capability? Often not the same people. Often actually it's no one who's responsible for thinking about the organizational architecture. Who's deciding what type of culture we need in order to implement our strategy or what's the appropriate organizational structure. And I'm not talking about the organizational chart. I'm talking about how it is that we want people to come together to cooperate. Is it in the form of coordination or is it in the form of collaboration that they're, they're different? Um, they're often the people that decide that aren't the same people that decided the strategy. Um, and so it's about bringing together these different decision makers within any, within any enterprise and ensuring that they're having you know a shared conversation and that they are using common assumptions and not competing assumptions um, often these different groups functionally hr it real estate uh, operations um, are in my experience in some cases you know don't always share the same priorities or share the same assumptions yet they're effectively managing the same thing which is the enterprise's overall architecture 
Um, and, well, and that's and interesting. Yeah, so, so just misalignment. Yeah, yeah, it does. I can see it creates the opportunity for misalignment. But also, I think that you see. I mean, certainly, I've seen IT departments, HR form an enterprise view. You know, some of yeah. them. Yeah. But they're very much forming it within their own purview, right? Exactly. And I think what you're suggesting is that these people are not trying to synthesize that. Well, and 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 I think you know this is not about criticizing anybody or giving anybody a hard time. Um, I think what you described is an act of enterprise leadership. Um, but I think it's made hard, you know, particularly in functional areas where increasingly, you know, the, the demands of technology sophistication means that we have to specialize. The more specialized we become, the harder it is to connect to others outside of our domain. So that, again, that's another challenge. Um, it doesn't reduce the importance of connecting or aligning with others functionally to make better collective decisions. It just makes it harder. So kind of one of the takeaway points, I think, from the book, hopefully, is that you know, we need to be even more sophisticated as leaders because our enterprises are having to become more sophisticated to cope in an increasingly demanding environment. And that's true whether you're a strategy specialist or an organizational design specialist or an HR specialist or a technology specialist or a real estate specialist. The point is that we all need to come together as enterprise leaders and make these collective choices. Um, and those that do win, those that don't struggle. And I think we see that, you know, probably everyone can relate to that if they've worked in an enterprise. Yeah, that's, uh, that's fascinating. It's almost, it's almost towards an organizational architecture office. You know, and of course, there's no prescription here, but it, that, that what comes to mind is that, that type of function emerging or that type of capability emerging. Which used to be commonplace. It used to be commonplace. Um, in fact, in the, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s and 50s, you know, we used to have literally those functions. Um, and that's what we used to understand by organizational design. And it was almost treated like a science. And I'm not saying it is a science, um, but I think actually, you know, we need that. Um, so I'd be delighted if one of the, the impacts of my work is that we create this sense that actually, you know, this is, this additional function that's required to bring it all together right well that of course begs the question why but why did we lose it uh that that's a really great question i don't think i have an easy answer to that but i probably think that went away when we went back to or rather when we started to embrace this uh universalistic perspective um right so this thought, well, we, we can shop around for the answers. We, we don't need to develop the answers internally. Correct. Correct. That's interesting. And maybe through, <laughs> through class of professional management think has created that problem. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, the first MBA was created in the late 19th century to, to train uh, a cadre of administrators to service the bureaucratic needs of the hierarchy, in particular of the... Um, the Pennsylvania Steel Company, um, uh, Josiah Wharton, now Wharton School of Management. Um, I mean, so our heritage comes from this sort of creating this, this sense of, of enterprise leadership. Um, but actually, I think what we've seen is fragmentation along specialist lines, concentration of power at board level, but often investing it in um, chief executives, for example, for where the average job tenure is, is decreasing 
thing all the time. So again, I, that's not being critical of anyone or any practice, but what it is saying is as our businesses have evolved, they've become more complex. What we haven't done is evolved our leadership structures and capabilities to match that. We're trying to be, and this is a, maybe an anecdotal point, trying to be more heroic, more uh, kind of um, more charismatic individuals. What we're not doing is developing this, this sort of more collective uh, approach to leadership and having that, as you say, office of alignment. Um, okay, or yeah. alignment office. There we are, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I suppose, yeah, perhaps the, the, the alignment word is more instructive than organizational architecture because actually you're 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 hinting towards an outcome there mm. i think alignment is the outcome alignment equals performance misalignment equals risk um yeah yeah well um fascinating maybe that's a that's a good place to conclude the the conversation is there, is there anything we've missed anything pertinent from the book you you thought we might have touched on no, no, I, I don't think so. I mean, simply that the book was written, again, not to be a prescriptive, um, you know, shopping list for anyone um, in terms of what they should do. The book was genuinely intended to raise awareness around a challenge, um, raise awareness around the importance of alignment, but then to offer um, this uh, system of thought, the intellectual toolkit to maybe, uh, as, as leaders, as enterprises, start to think differently about our own um, enterprises. And, you know, I think we, we, we are not just trying to write about that, we're trying to create that in our education at Oxford as well. Um, and, you know, halt, ultimately, hopefully, in, in the, the hope for some sort of positive impact, um, because it really matters. Um, so in that sense, it's a huge privilege to write the book, but, but I'm very conscious that in some sense I've written it, now the hard work is on others to apply it. And I, I really wish yeah. them the best of luck. Yes, and I, th- I think it's, I think it's a powerful corrective actually. For if there are anybody else like me who who have become seduced by certain universalist principles or perspectives, and have become quite enamoured of them, I think this is just a really powerful corrective. So like, well, 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 you know, just think, what's your context? What's going to work in your scenario? What what values, behaviours are really going to serve the the purpose of your business and the context in your in? Just just a very par- mm. powerful articulation of that need yeah well thank you thank you thank you jonathan and uh yeah it's been del- delight to to spend this time with you we'll put a link to uh, to the book is there any anywhere else you would point people um who are, want to go deeper with this yeah i think um you know the, the variety of um resources that we're putting online um uh, via the um the university um, so at Oxford, we're doing a, a lot of stuff. Um, we're launching a, a, uh, the Oxford Strategic Climate Program um, later in the year, which is, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm not trying to plug it. No, um, no, plug, plug, plug away. No, well, well, I am, I suppose. Um, uh, but I mean, that's a, a six-week online course um, for anyone anywhere in the world. Um, so the, the point is you're not constrained by your ability to get to Oxford physically, which at the moment is really important. Um, uh, you know, precisely to equip people with this enterprise leadership capability. Um, we're, we're doing sort of a variety of um, uh, engagement exercises. So I, I'd encourage people to, to um, you know, search the Oxford Said Business School website or probably simply, you know, simplest yet, um, Google me 
uh, my name uh, and a whole lot of stuff comes up and if anyone wants to talk about it then you know we're very open to that so again you know our job is to help others um, with this whether it's in a research or an educational capacity um, and and you know we're very much open to having conversations um, particularly if we can learn in the process uh, and, and build it into our research excellent all right well thank you so much and uh, yes we'll uh, uh, yeah look forward to seeing uh, how that goes your program yes thank you very much right. and thanks for the time yeah thank you jonathan thanks the being human podcast was brought to you by first human for more on first humans human focused coaching and leadership programs head to firsthuman.com